Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11 is where we'll begin this period of our worship, where we open the Bible and study together and learn what God has to teach us from His Word today. Mark chapter 11. We have a number of visitors here with us. Thank you so much for being here. We want you to feel welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're excited that you've chosen to worship God with us. And if you have questions about anything you see or hear about anything that we do in our service, we'd love to talk to you about that. If there's something that you need, uh, some crisis or issue in your life that we can help you with, we'd love to talk to you about that. Just anything that we can do to help you draw closer to God, we want to be able to do that. So please let us know about that. But thank you for being here this morning. Mark chapter 11, I want to begin by reading in verse 20. Mark 11 and verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I want to take a few minutes this morning and challenge your thinking and your biblical understanding. So this will require both your open Bible and an open mind for a few minutes. I want to show you from Scripture that I believe miracles happen today. Now, that may be different from what you have heard. In fact, you might already be recoiling at me just saying that. And I ask you to be patient and give me an opportunity to prove my case. I urge you to hear me out because I believe this is a discussion that we need to have. And it has some consequences, what we believe about miracles, and particularly how we express what we believe about miracles for our interactions with other people and for our own personal faith and what we think God can and will do. Now, in this passage, Jesus is urging his disciples to pray. It is on the heels of a miracle he has performed. And yet, when he talks about prayer, he says, if you believe and you pray, amazing things will happen like mountains being uprooted and planted into the sea. Things that we would call miracles, and yet they are attributed to things that are stock traits of disciples, like prayer and faith. And so, Jesus is telling us that miracles are a part of our lives. And I want to talk a little bit about how and how that works. Now, to begin with, I want to ask the question, what is a miracle? The major problem we have on this issue is a definition problem. And that might be boring to you, but I assure you it is not boring when we talk about miracles, right? Miracles are pretty interesting. So I want to present you with three definitions that I think all have some part to play in this discussion. The first definition is some people would say, if you ask them what's a miracle, they would say it's something surprising or unexpected. That is kind of the ordinary definition of miracle. It's kind of our cultural definition of miracle. So you go to the store and you buy Miracle Whip. But there are no miracles involved in Miracle Whip. It's made of ordinary stuff. In fact, it tastes pretty ordinary, right? Okay. You go to the store and you buy Miracle Grow. Nothing supernatural happens to the soil. Okay. And yet, that's the way. It's, it's surprising or it's unexpected. Sometimes you'll watch a football game and there will be talk of a miracle comeback. Okay. Now, it's unexpected, sure. It's surprising, sure. And yet, that word miracle is often used in that way. A second definition is something that defies the laws of nature. So this is the idea that's sort of a standard definition. In fact, we'll talk more about it as we go. 
And the third definition is a miracle is God empowering a man to do supernatural works, usually to validate his divine commission. You can see that's more of a biblical definition of the idea of a miracle. So when I say miracles happen today, which is my contention this morning, I don't mean that first definition, just things that are surprising or unexpected, although certainly surprising and unexpected things do happen. I just would not call those miracles. They don't rise to the level of miracles. So it is not in any sense a miracle when one football team beats another. All right, that's not miraculous. It's not miraculous at all when you add some nutrients to soil and it makes plants grow quickly, okay? No miracles involved in that. Yes, it might be surprising and it might be unexpected, but I'm going to go ahead and say, let's cross that one out. That's not really what we're going for with miracles. When I say miracles happen today, I do not mean the third definition, God empowering a man to do supernatural works, usually to validate his divine commission. I want to talk a minute about that and how I believe that that definition no longer is valid in terms of how miracles happen today. So the Bible does describe men God empowered to do works no one else could do, supernatural works done through the hands of men. And the point of God empowering men to do that in Scripture was to authenticate the messenger so that the messenger could be said to speak for God. Now, the classic example of this is Moses. This is in Exodus 4, 1 to 5. Then Moses answered, Speaking to God, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it, which by the way is a great reaction. That's what I would do if anything around me became a snake. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So you see the goal, he's going to do a miracle. God is empowering Moses to throw his rod down and it becomes a snake and then to pick it up again and it becomes a rod. And he says, this miracle, so they will know that Jehovah has appeared to you. So this is definition three that we talked about, God empowering a man to do supernatural works. Now, something similar is said about Jesus. This is Nicodemus in John 3, 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So signs is a different word for miracle. Signs mean it points to something else. So Jesus, you're doing things, but we don't think, oh, Jesus is a really incredible man. Instead, we think you are a teacher come from God. So it speaks of Jesus empowering by God, and it also speaks to Jesus' message. You're a teacher come from God. So we're going to listen to what you say because of what you do. We believe your words because we see your works. That's the way miracles worked in the Bible. So... Miracles in the Bible are not about the person doing them. So God empowers a man, and yet the man is not glorified. It is instead God behind the man. And people acknowledge, oh, Jehovah appeared to you. Oh, you are a teacher come from God. They see God behind it instead of just saying that man is really unique and special. So what miracles are really about in the Bible, and this idea of God empowering people to do supernatural works, I've said usually to validate his divine commission, they're really about God revealing his will and his power by empowering men. So after Jesus ascends to heaven, the apostles are empowered with similar abilities, and they're able to do things that men cannot do on their own. They heal the sick, 
They speak in languages that they have never learned. They raise the dead. And the question is, why do they do that? Why does God empower these men to do supernatural works? Well, they are part of how God reveals his will, what he wants, and his power, showing that these men are speaking for him. A couple of passages on that. John 14, 26, where Jesus addresses the apostles. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things that, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So they're going to go out teaching, and the Holy Spirit's going to bring to their remembrance everything that Jesus said. John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare you the things that are to come. So... The question is, as the, the, the apostles have the Holy Spirit and they can speak for Jesus, how will people know they can speak for Jesus? How will they know that these 11 guys from Galilee are telling the truth because they are announcing a huge transition away from the way things used to be in terms of God through the law of Moses now to a new way of being right with God through his son? How will people know that that message is from God and not from these Galilean fishermen? And the answer is God will empower them to do miracles. It is a way God is saying, these are my men and they are speaking for me. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. We're just working here on uh, definition 3 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2 is an important text in this discussion. Hebrews 2 and verse 1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For, verse 2, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Now that's talking about the law of Moses. If the law of Moses was strong and firm, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God confirmed. It says there in verse 3, it was attested by those who heard. And verse 4, God also bore witness. How? By signs and wonders and miracles. Because God empowered people like the apostles to do things no man could do. And the point of that was that God was saying, this is my message. It is from me. You can trust it. You should listen to it. That was the goal of miracles. Now, the Hebrew writer also introduces, look at verse 4 again. He also introduces the, the term gifts of the Holy Spirit. These are the gifts that accompany the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Things like prophecy or things like healing or speaking in foreign languages. Those gifts were part of how God revealed and confirmed his word. But, and this is important, there is sort of a natural expectation that when God is transitioning his people from one system to another, and he does it by these great miracles and impressive works, and he's revealing a new way, there's an expectation that there will be a time when that transition is complete. When that revelation is done, when now we are fully understanding of a revelation that's been complete. So, 
I believe that's what Paul is looking forward to in 1 Corinthians 13. Let's look at that text, 1 Corinthians 13. I appreciate you turning with me to these passages. We're laying the groundwork here for where we're headed. So 1 Corinthians 13 is a place where Paul, is, it's well known as a chapter about love, but Paul is contrasting love and spiritual gifts. And he talks about how spiritual gifts without love are, are failure, they're worthless, and that love is more important than tongues, he says in verse 1, more important than prophecy, he says in verse 2, more important than the spiritual gift of faith or the sacrificial spirit in verse 3. But notice what he says in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So love doesn't fail or end, but these spiritual gifts, he says, they do end. And each one of them, he says in a different way, they're going to end. They're not going to continue indefinitely. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he says whenever the perfect or the complete comes, these things are going to end. Spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, that sort of thing. And then in verse 11, Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the spiritual gifts in this text are the childish things that, that we need for a while, but at some point we graduate to maturity. We become a man, in Paul's words. And so those childish things, those spiritual gifts are done away. There is an end to those things. Now, I understand there, there's a lot of controversy regarding this passage as to the precise meaning, particularly what is meant by that phrase, the perfect or the complete in verse 10. And, and I understand, I don't really want to dig into that too, too deeply. I believe it points to a time when we would live in maturity without this constant need for the validation and authentication of the message where there's not always going to be a need. Well, what miracle can you perform? I, I get up to speak, and I'm going to talk from the, the Bible, and you have to say, well, well, Jacob, before you could say anything, what miracle can you perform? There comes a time when we can say, you know what? God's word is what it is. It is complete. It is validated. And so we can move forward. So even though not everybody agrees on the interpretation of this passage, I will say that, that almost everyone, even in the denominational world, agrees that Christian revelation has been given and is complete. I will also say that we don't see prophets in the biblical sense today. We don't see Elijah's running around. We don't see miracle workers running around. We don't see people spontaneously speaking in human languages that they've never learned. So it appears that that time has passed. Revelation has been given and confirmed. So... I said all of that to say this. When I say miracles happen today, I don't mean definition three. I do believe that God in the Bible empowered men to do supernatural works, usually to validate their divine commission. I do believe that God empowered men to heal with a touch. I do believe that God empowered men to be able to speak to the, the sea and for it to obey them. I do believe God empowered men to do amazing supernatural works in Bible times. I am saying when I say miracles happen today, I don't see men doing those things today. However, I do believe that God still works in his world. And by that definition, I believe miracles happen today. Something that defies the laws of nature. Most 
Bible dictionaries, in fact, if you look up the word miracle in a regular dictionary, you will find definition two, something that defies the laws of nature. Miracles defy or supersede what naturally happens. So, whenever we pray, we are asking for a miracle. We are asking for God to do something and intervene in his world. And that, by definition, is something that defies the laws of nature. Now, I'm going to give you some examples of that in just a moment. But I want to tell you why this matters. I want to tell you about a conversation I've had on several occasions. When someone has asked or I have said something akin to the age of miracles has passed, by which I meant definition three, of course. And someone will say, almost immediately, they will say, oh, you don't believe God works in the world anymore? Or more commonly, well, I believe God works in the world. It's too bad you don't. Or they'll say something like, don't you believe in prayer? You see what's happening? See, I'm talking about definition three, but they're talking about definition two. So we're getting cross in the definitions. And that matters because sometimes we don't even realize we're miscommunicating. We think we're saying one thing and they think we're saying a different thing. And that matters because it means they're going to reject something that they might not reject if we were able to understand one another. But the main reason I think this is important and one of the reasons I am preaching this is because if we miss this, then it will restrict our view of how God works in his world. And we will begin to think that God's not at work anymore. That, yeah, God did some stuff back in the Bible times, but, I mean, it's 2019. What is God doing today? I don't know. Sometimes it appears to me that we hold a view that makes us practical deists. You know, deists are those who believe that God created the world and then kind of let it go, left it alone, and that maybe someday there will be a reckoning and everything, but right now God's kind of got his feet up and letting the world run on its own laws. So nothing in the Bible teaches us that God is distant or uninvolved in his world. Can I say that again? Nothing in the Bible teaches that God is distant or uninvolved in his world. It is his world. And we need to know that. We need to know that for our own personal comfort and spiritual growth and gratitude. We need to know that we can ask God for help and he will help. We need to know, in other words, that by that definition, miracles do happen today. So the question then becomes, how do miracles happen today? What does that look like? I want you to go with me to the book of Nehemiah for a moment. Nehemiah chapter 1. <clears throat> I want to talk for the rest of our time a little more practically about some of these things and what this is going to look like and feel like, excuse me, as we see God at work in the world and really how Bible people describe that. And Nehemiah is a great place to go. Now, I understand that Nehemiah might not be the most prominent and well-known of the books of the Bible, and so I want to take a moment, just kind of set our context. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king of Persia. And at the same time that Nehemiah is there serving the king, he hears about how in Jerusalem things are in bad shape. Particularly, the city is a mess and the walls are broken down. And he gets it into his mind that he wants to go to Jerusalem and use his position with the king 
to get supplies and opportunity to go help rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. Now, what is notable about Nehemiah, the whole book of Nehemiah, is that there is nothing in the book that could be called a miracle by definition three. That idea that God empowers Nehemiah and he starts, you know, talking to people, healing people, moving stuff around. None of that happens in Nehemiah. In fact, sometimes people have called it a book that's completely about providence and how God works through his providence. But whatever we say about it, Nehemiah is not a book like that, and yet God's fingerprints are all over the story. Look at Nehemiah 1 and verse 11. Nehemiah 1 and verse 11. Nehemiah prays to God, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, Nehemiah is about to go see the king. And when you go see a Persian king, the Persian king can cut your head off with a snap of his fingers, and they are notoriously that way. And so he's concerned and he prays to God, give me favor in his sight. Give me favor. What is he asking for? You know what he's asking for? He is asking for an interruption of the regular process of nature. God, please act in a way so that this king sees me for good. Something that defies the laws of nature. Turn the page to chapter 2, Nehemiah 2 and verse 8. It says, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, for the house that I should occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, regular conversation with the king? Yes, he has a regular conversation. And yet he says, God's hand was upon me, and so the king gave me what I asked, because God gave me favor. Nehemiah 2 and verse 12 He says, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. How did God put that into Nehemiah's heart? There's no special revelation here. God didn't appear to him in a burning bush. There's nothing like that about Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, I saw the problem. I saw what I could do. I hatched a plan. I prayed about it, and God gave me what I asked. So God is the author of the idea, and he attributes it to God. Nehemiah 2 and verse 20. Nehemiah 2 and verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we as servants will arise and build for you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So God is going to bless the building of the wall. How? Does that mean God's going to do it in a miraculous way? Well, not in one sense, not in the third definition, supernatural works, but according to something that defies the laws of nature, God doing a work in a way that could not have been done without God's help. Not natural, divine, defying the laws of nature. So, look a little further down, chapter 4. I want to look in chapter 4 and verse 20. Chapter 4, verse 20, there's a lot of these little statements throughout Nehemiah, but I just want to show you a few of them. Nehemiah 4 and verse 20, Nehemiah says, In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. What does that mean? Our God will fight for us. Is he literal? Is this miraculous? Well, no, he is saying God will help us. How is God going to help? What is he praying for? What is he asking for? What is he confident in? Do you understand? God is here. God will help. Things are not going to go the way they would naturally go because I asked God to help. And that God acting in his creation is something that defies the laws of nature. By definition, that's what that is. 
That's what he's praying for. Look a little further in chapter 6, Nehemiah 6 and verse 15. Nehemiah 6.15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. It is a miracle in one sense, not another. But he is saying it happened abnormally quick. The people were abnormally motivated. There was an abnormal protection This is not the way it would have gone if we were left to our own devices. God helped, and everybody saw it. We knew it, but everybody else saw it too. They looked at it, and they said, this is God's work. So it is something that defies the laws of nature. Now, it is not a miracle in the sense of God empowering a man to do supernatural works. You don't see that in Nehemiah. But you do see this. You do see a people abnormally and strangely unified as they ask God for his help. And so there has to be the deduction that Nehemiah makes from it, which is, this must be God's work. Now, you don't see in Nehemiah's prayers, asking God for help, Oh, Lord, he asks several times, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. What does that mean? What's he asking for? Is he asking for supernatural strength? He's asking for God to work in his creation. Help us. We're doing your work. And when we pray, we're asking God to do something. He also doesn't have this careful parsing of definitions. You notice that? God, I know you don't do this anymore, so can you please just do this? He just leaves the door open for God. You figure out how you want to do this, but please help this work. Help me to have favor with the king. Help me to have the materials that I need. Help me to rally the people, protect us. And then at the end, we give you the glory for what you've done. Let's talk about you and me. We've talked enough about Nehemiah. Let's talk about you and me. Let's go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I know I went back to the definition screen here, but we're, we're really talking about how miracles happen today. James 1, beginning in verse 5. James 1 and verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James says, verse 5 there, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Ask God to provide it. And we ask confidently because we know our purposes align with God's in this situation. Well, and I've heard us, I think in this congregation, have these discussions about, well, well, how does that work? How does God give wisdom? You ask, and God will give. Well, the door is kind of open here, isn't it? James doesn't say ask, and God will only give in this way. We gain wisdom from Scripture, of course. We gain wisdom from one another. Sometimes we'll ask, hey, what do you think about this? What's your advice? And we gain wisdom from each other. Sometimes we gain wisdom from making mistakes. Hopefully we learn from them. But there are also times when we're unsure about all of those things. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't know what Scripture, Scripture didn't really speak to it, nobody you knew really had good advice for you, and you didn't know what to do? What do you do then? 
You ask God, and he'll provide wisdom. So when God provides wisdom to foolish people, it is unnatural. It is not the natural course of life for foolish people to suddenly gain wisdom, is it? No, it is an aberration. It is God acting to do something that would not have been done otherwise. Interfere in your world, we say to God. Help me. Give me what I need. Turn the page over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Verse 13. James 5 and verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James is talking here about prayer. We need to pray for one another, especially we need to pray for the sick. And we're not going to go and parse through this passage in detail. I know we had a a session on this in our prayer workshop. But let me just say, and then in verse 15, when he says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. I do believe that we're talking about physical sickness. The prayer of faith, he says, will save the sick. Think about that. When we pray for sick people, what are we asking for? We know that when people get sick, eventually all of us are going to die. And some people, when they get sick, are going to die. When we ask God to heal someone, we are asking for God to defy the laws of nature. Make it happen differently for this person. Because I know them, because I care about them, because there's some good they can do. For some reason, I'm asking you, God, to intervene. On their behalf. Now, you can see how we might call that a miracle. And yet we see that with some regularity, don't we? People that we pray for who are healed, who get better. Somebody might say, well, they might have gotten better anyway. They were going to get better in the first place. To which my response is, why did we pray? staggering to me that we would be resistant to the idea that God had actually healed or helped when we asked him to. If we ask God for healing and he grants it, how can we say it was going to happen anyway? And if we think it's going to happen anyway, why are we asking? It seems to me that if One of my children says, Dad, I would really like a bike. And then the next day, there's a bike in their room. They're probably going to know who did it, right? If we ask God for things and then he gives them to us, what do we say about them? Well, I sure am glad that was going to happen anyway. It seems to me that people of faith have to have the ability to say, Thank you, God, for giving me what I asked. To return and thank God like that one leper did to Jesus. That when we ask for something and we receive it, 
We give thanks to God. Now, I want to say that's hard because it's always possible to attribute God's blessings to other causes. It's always possible to say, well, you know, the doctors weren't really sure in the first place. They just made a mistake. But if we're going to ask God for healing, we've got to thank God for healing. Do you remember where we started? Whatever you ask in prayer, Jesus says, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. God wants us to ask and he wants us to know that he is the one who does the answering to that prayer. I want to remind you, and I I just want to emphatically make this point. Whenever we pray, what we are doing is we are asking the sovereign God, the ruler of the universe, who holds all our ways and our breath in his hand, and we are saying, God, I know that you've got everything under control, but can you please, because of little old me, can you change this? Can you change this with this person? Can you change this with this situation? This conversation I'm about to have, can you help me? Like Abraham, where God says, I'm going to go down to Sodom, and I'm going to see how bad it is. And Abraham says, well, wait a minute. Can, would you spare the city? Would you spare the city? And, and down and down and down the number goes because Abraham is asking, Almighty God, will you please reconsider the way the world is working for me. And there is an audacity to that that is astonishing, a boldness to say we can go before God and expect God to change His plans for the world for us, to intervene in His world. And if that's not a miracle, I don't know what to call it because it is something far bigger than what we deserve. And it's certainly not something that we can say, well, It was probably going to happen anyway. So, I want to remind you that these stories we've read show us that the answer to the prayer might look different than what we would expect. Like in Nehemiah's case, we pray for favor in front of the king, we pray for God's protection, and yet they had to build that wall with tools in one hand and weapons in the other. It might look different than what we expect. It might be that there are ordinary things we weren't sure were going to happen and we prayed for and God granted. But let me just answer the question. What do miracles look like today? Miracles look like this. They look like a church family praying over a brother or sister in Christ and seeing them come out of that surgery or that cancer treatment and they are healed. Miracles look like parents praying over their children and God opening the hearts of those children at just the right moments for them to receive the gospel. They look like parents praying over their wayward children who have wandered away from the Lord and who don't see any reason for hope and yet they trust that God is going to act. And someday, perhaps those children come home What do we say about that? It looks like young disciples praying for a godly mate and then somehow, in just the right time, crossing paths with someone who is a blessing to them. Miracles look like disciples praying for a special work to be done, 
a special work in someone's heart, a special work in a local church, a special work in our families. And then slowly seeing that come to pass, probably in a way that we didn't envision. Miracles look like radical growth away from sin into the nature of God. Haven't you seen it in your life? Things that were not natural and they were not trending that way. And yet they have changed. Miracles look like surprising blessings. Financial blessings, social blessings, emotional blessings that come when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And you look at it and you say, well, that's not the way it was going to work. And yet God answered. They look like the gradual change in our own hearts as we pray and pray to learn to forgive. And we see slow healing and God enabling us to move forward. I just want to stress, that's not natural. It's God's work. And if you don't like calling it miracles, I'm okay with that. I understand that that's a debate we might not want to get into. But please, let's acknowledge that God is at work in us and in our world. It's easy for us to assume when we see God at work, that maybe some of these things would have happened anyway. Especially after the fact, you can always look back and say, oh, I see what was going to happen. But I believe that the word miracle helps draw our attention to just how amazing it is, how unexpected and unnatural it is. Because it means God has bent the rules to bless us. To bless us. And we need that sense of God working in our lives. So I believe that miracles happen today. My question is, what miracles have you seen? What miracles are you asking God for? What miracles are you praising God for? And I hope you'll think about that and give the glory to God as you see him at work in your life. Might be someone here this morning who needs the healing power God brings because you know there is sin in your life that has stood between you and God. You've done wrong and you know the weight of that sin and the guilt that you carry. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to take that sin away and he died for you so that your sins would be removed and you could be reconciled to God. And we love nothing more than to be instruments to help that happen for you this morning. If you're ready to come confessing your faith in Jesus, turning away from your sins, you could be baptized in water, have those sins washed away this morning. Is there a need that you have? Please let us know. Come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.